Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. So um, before we partake uh, partake in the Lord's Supper, um, I wanted to go through a story about uh, Jesus healing the blind man. And as you know, he healed multiple people of blindness, but this one is a healing of congenital blindness. The, the man is, is blind from birth, okay? So uh, is my screen not showing, Alfonso? Um, there we go. There we go, we got it. And so we're gonna be in John chapter nine, and we're gonna look at the, the entire, almost the entire chapter on this. And the, really the core of what we wanna get to is how does spiritual blindness happen? First of all, we're gonna discuss it in the context of this passage, and it's dealing with unbelief, okay? But then I wanna make an application, and I wanna segue into believers, and is it possible that a believer can get spiritually blind as well? I think the answer to that will shock you when we get to the end of this. So we're gonna start out and understand the messianic implications of this whole drama. I'm gonna try to bring out the very Jewishness of it so you can understand the background. And so we start off with this. Now as Jesus passed by, now let me set the tone. This is coming on the heels of chapter eight of John where Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkoth the Feast of Booths. This is the last feast in the fall festival, and the Feast of Booths represent um, backwards the time when Israel lived in tents, but point forward to the Messianic kingdom and point forward to when Jesus rules and reigns, the Messiah, and it points forward to the, the, the millennial reign of the Messiah with the, the animals being kind to each other, and then all the nations coming to Jerusalem as Israel is the head of the nations. That's why there will be a sacrifice of 70 bulls and uh, representing the 70 nations coming back to the Lord under the Messiah. So it has huge implications. That feast represents the Messianic age and the Messianic kingdom. So, it's celebrated uh, early October-ish, sometimes it's in the middle of October, sometimes even late September, just depends on the Jewish calendar, but it is the last of the fall feasts. Interesting enough, it has a, uh, a holiday attached to the end of it. It's called the eighth day. And the eighth day is where it's a seven-day feast, and on the eighth day, you go home. It's interesting that it developed that because it represents the messianic age, which we know is to be a thousand years, but the eighth day represents going home and it represents going into eternity at that point. So after the messianic age, we go right into eternity. So it's very neat how that thing played itself out. But Jesus is using this feast to illustrate several things about him. Let me, let me explain one thing that he'll do. At this feast, they light during the night, these huge torches everywhere, okay? And there, it fills up the whole capacity of the temple. I'll show you some pictures in a bit. But he uses this as they're lighting the temple at this area to come out there and say, I am the light of the world. You know, make that dramatic statement at the Feast of Tabernacles as they light up the whole area. 
He will also use the feast, because every day of the feast for seven days, they have to go to the pool of Salome, which is in southern Jerusalem, get water, and then pour the water on the southwest side of the altar where the blood flowed. And they would pour the water in with a, a, a golden uh, vase that was held about three pints of water. And they would pour that water out. He will take advantage of when they're pouring the water out and saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and I will give him living waters that, that well up inside of him. So he'll do those two things on that occasion, okay? So this is at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's done those things, and then he comes in contact with this blind man, okay? So that's the setting, okay? Feast of Tabernacles. Now Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, so congenital blindness. Now this is a big deal. The Pharisees were actually able to cure people's blindness, okay? There had been incidents, incidents of that happening in Jerusalem already. That wasn't the issue. The issue is when a man was born blind, they, the Pharisees were not able to do the healing on that. And so the Pharisees concluded that when Messiah shows up, he will be able to heal a man from being blind at birth, and when you see someone do that, that's the Messiah. So there are three messianic miracles. One is healing congenital blindness. The other one is when the Messiah shows up, he will heal leprosy, which, which uh, um, uh, no Jewish person had been healed of leprosy since Miriam. Naaman was healed, but he was a Gentile. But no Jewish person had been healed uh, from leprosy. And they said, well, when Messiah comes, he'll be able to do that. And then... The third messianic miracle was Messiah will be able to heal a deaf and mute demon out of a person. They'll be able to exercise that out of a person. Now, what is the big deal about that? Demons have the ability to make people go mute and deaf, okay? I've seen that myself. And, and so they have that ability. When they do that to a person, they take over and they shut down the auditory and they shut down the mouth of the person. The person can't speak and they can't hear anything. I've, I've had a person in front of me that had 12 demons in them and she couldn't hear me anytime I went to the gospel. Anytime I shared the truth with her, she couldn't hear anything. And then when I, would try to, when I drew a cross on a, on a board for her, on a chalkboard, she didn't even see it correctly. She saw it as an upside down cross. So the demon was messing with her faculties. Um, she wasn't blind in this situation, but she couldn't hear. So it made her deaf in that ear, in the both ears. So I've seen this for myself. And so the Pharisees couldn't exercise demons that made the person deaf or mute because they couldn't ascertain the name of the demon. The first thing you did in demon possession is you had to get the name of the demon in order to cast it out. Well, if it's deaf and mute, you can't get the name. So it stopped the Pharisees. So that what they said was, when Messiah shows up, Messiah will be able to exercise a demon out of a deaf and mute person that's been done that way from a demon. Okay, so this is the third messianic miracle, congenital blindness, and he has the ability to do it. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. Now, this is a crazy thought, but where did it come from? It came from Phariseeism. And the Pharisees said that the reason people were born with physical defects was because either their parents sinned and passed that sin on to their baby, 
or God saw in the future that that baby would sin when they were an adult, so he cursed the person in the womb because of what the person would do in the future. So it's kind of like Job's friends. You must have done something wrong. And this was the Pharisaical teaching. We know that's false. We know that's wrong. We know that um, birth defects or whatever come from the fall, not from the person's sin or the parent's sin. That's ridiculous. It comes from the fall. We're in a fallen world and children have defects. We all have defects. I have defects. You have defects. Well, no one's perfect. We have genetic flaws, right? Okay, so that's a part of the fall, but it's not because someone sinned. So the Pharisees turned this whole thing around and said, no, it's because they sinned. So Jesus dispels that, and it's in the disciples' minds. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, the way the Greek is reading is that God didn't cause this, understand. The way the Greek is reading is a resultant in the Greek. And what does that mean? As the result of this man being born blind, God is going to use him to show something and give himself glory to the, obviously to the father and to the son. So it's not a, it's not a cause, it's a resultant. And that's what the Greek is trying to say. Okay, so God didn't cause this, okay? So anyway, we obviously know the messianic miracle is gonna unfold from this. Okay, then he says, I must work the works of him who sent me. Look at the word sent me. Who sent him? The father sent him. That's a big deal, okay, in Jewish context. By what authority do you do these things is what he was asked. By what authority? Because in the Jewish context, you look for authority. Does he have the proper authority? And so he continues to say, it is the Father who sent me, so I'm under the Father's authority, he keeps saying, okay? And, and, and who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. What is that referring to? It's referring to the time when the ascension happens all the way to the second coming. So we're in the place that Jesus said is night because he's not here on earth. He's not here. So since he's not here, the light of the world is not here. Therefore, the world's in darkness because he's not here. But he says, as long as I am in the world, as long as I am here, I am the light of the world. And so the light of the world is coming and he will be the light of the world in the messianic age. But why he was here, he was the light of the world. And he was gonna do something about this. It's a prefiguring of what will happen in the messianic age that when Jesus is here, he reverses the curse. Babies will not be born with congenital blindness or any defect. In fact, there will be a proliferation of pregnancies all over the planet to repopulate the planet. And these babies, there will be no defects, there will be no stillborns, there will be no miscarriages. According to Isaiah 65, everything is safe for childbearing and child raising. So there will be a proliferation of adult, uh, sorry, humans that populate the planet. So everything will be taken care of. In fact, people will live a thousand years if they believe in the Messiah. You will die at 100 if you don't believe. That's a probationary period. And so, so the penalty is, if at 100 years in the Messianic age, you do not come to faith in the Messiah, then the penalty is you die at that point. But if you do, you live for the whole thousand years. 
So there's a lot, th- a lot of things in here. So since he's here, I'm gonna do something about it. So when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the, the, the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. Now the qu- people ask, well, why did he do this? And, and the problem is you'll have these commentaries that are Gentile commentaries and they don't know the Jewish background on why he did what he did. Why would he make sal- use his spit, his saliva, to make mud and put it on his eyes? <clears throat> What's the deal about that? Well, several things, several Jewish things. First of all, by doing this, he is intentionally provoking the Pharisees and religious leaders, intentionally. Okay, what do you mean? Um, Let me show you. This is in the Talmud, to the days of, of, of Jesus, okay? It is permissible to shut and open one's eyes on the Sabbath day, question mark, in the Talmud, to put taste of saliva even on the eye is forbidden. So you see one of the reasons why he's putting saliva on the guy's eyes? Because the Talmud says it's forbidden. Now the Talmud is the Pharisaical laws, it's not Moses' law. Jesus will totally obey Moses' law, the 613 commands, because those are the laws of God. But he will intentionally disobey man's laws. Okay, are you following me? There's a difference. So he intentionally does this to provoke them. He's doing it intentionally, okay, because of the Talmud. Furthermore, in the Talmud, it does say a certain person, this is hard to read in the Talmud, uh, came before, uh, uh, this is a rabbi, Hanina, and said to him, I am, a certain, I am certain that this man is the firstborn. He said to him, whence do you know this? The other replied to him, because when the people came to his father, he used to say to them, go to my son, uh, Shekhath, uh, who, is a, who is firstborn, and his spittle heals. Might he not have been the firstborn of his mother only? There is a tradition that spittle of the firstborn of a father is healing, but that of the firstborn of a mother is not healing. Okay, so again, Talmudic writings. So the idea in Jesus' day is that a firstborn has properties in his saliva <coughs> that has healing powers, okay? Is Messiah the firstborn? Yes, he is the firstborn among the dead, right? And so he is the son of God, the unique son of God. So it, it goes right into the Talmud, even though the spittle is not to be used on someone's eye, the Talmud also says that the spittle of a firstborn has healing properties, So again, he's using their stuff against them. This is what you said. Okay, something else. Let's go back. Notice Jesus's, where does saliva come from? The mouth, okay? Then he takes dirt from the ground and he mixes what comes out of his mouth with the dirt and makes a mud out of that. What does that remind you of? It's creation. Because what comes out of God's mouth, he speaks creation, doesn't he? He speaks and then the creation forms. He creates ex nihilo. So, and then he created us out of the dust out of the ground and he breathed the breath of life. 
Jesus is showing that I'm not only the Messiah, but I'm the one that created all of this. I'm the creator and sustainer of all this, Colossians chapter one. So he's showing that the creator can take inanimate objects, use anything that comes from his mouth, and to form new eyeballs for the man as he puts the paste on the man's eyes. Again, putting the paste and saliva on the man's eyes is forbidden by the Talmud, but he's doing it anyway because he's provoking them, okay? But showing he's, that he's God. He's the God-man, okay? Let's continue on. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Salom, which is translated sent. Remember what I said? Jesus said he was what? Sent by the Father. That's where he derives his authority from. The pool, Salom, in Hebrew means sent. Jesus is the sent one, and he's sending the guy to the sent pool, the pool of Salom. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. Okay, well, let's talk about the pool of Salom real quick. Here we go. This is a model of the first century um, Jerusalem in the days of Jesus, okay? And this is at the museum in Jerusalem. But anyway, there's this little model. You see where that red arrow is? That's the Pool of Siloam. And the temple would have been up there where they had the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is where they would walk all the way down to get water from the Pool of Siloam and then take it back to the temple and pour it on the altar, okay? So um, Jesus is somewhere up there by the temple, maybe in the precincts of the temple. So he heals this guy, but he tells him, I need you to go down all the way to Pool of Siloam and wash your eyes. Now, why does he do that? Because Jesus is healed on the spot. Jesus doesn't need mud or saliva or anything. He's healed from afar. He's God. He can do anything, right? But he makes this man go down all the way to the Pool of Siloam, and the man's still blind. You understand this? The man is still blind until he washes it off. So he's going to send the blind man all the way down from the temple to the Pool of Siloam. Here's what it looked like. Uh, it, this is a better picture. This is an archaeology illustrated. This guy, Balaj Balag, he does great work. He, he does recreations of, of what it looked like. You go to his website, he has phenomenal pictures. He draws all, all of them. Um, anyway, so you can see the height and the depth more in this picture. So this is the, you're looking at the southern end of, of Zion, of Jerusalem, and you can see the Temple Mount. You would have to descend down and you can see that corridor that goes all the way up to the temple from there. And then on the right side, that's the city of David. Um, <clears throat> and this kind of an artist's recreation of what the pool looked like. This is what it you would have seen when you went to the area. <clears throat> By the way, I think, I think the last time I was in Jerusalem, and it, we, we, we went by the Pool of Siloam after we came out of uh, Hezekiah's tunnel, and we came upon the Pool, the pool of Siloam, but I, I, I can't remember who owns it. The Catholics own it or the Orthodox or Armenians. I can't remember who does it. And they wouldn't give up Israel, give it up for Israel to excavate it for some reason. They're just being stubborn punks, I think. And, and so um, they finally this year said, okay, we'll let you excavate. So Israel's now going in there and excavating the pool of Siloam. So within a few years, you're gonna be able to see the pool as it was, it's buried right underneath. You can see the steps as you go by it. And you can see those steps right there. We walked right on the steps. <clears throat> Pretty amazing. Anyway, it would have looked something like that, giant pool. 
And here's the steps that we walked on. There's the steps to the Pool of Siloam. So this stuff to the left, that has to be excavated. That's on top of it right now. So that's what they're gonna allow Israel to do uh, is ex excavate the rest of the pool. And, but those are the ancient steps right there that you're looking at. Um, this is the, as you come out of Hezekiah's tunnel, that's where the water's uh, flowing to. So the water comes from the, the, the Gihon Spring and Hezekiah built a tunnel. I don't know how he did this, but it's like 1,500 feet. I, no, 15, where am I at? Not 1,500 feet, I keep saying that. You guys anybody remember how the length of it was? What? It was a long walk, I know. It can't be a thousand feet. It has to be a way. Anyway, you guys can look it up. But we walked in a tunnel with water up to here and up to here. And that water comes from the Gihon Spring that Hezekiah built when the Assyrians were invading. And he wanted the, 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 the Jerusalem to have a water source inside the city walls. So think about this. They started digging on one end and they started digging on another and somehow they figured out how to meet in the middle. And it's just pure limestone. I don't know how they did it. It's amazing. You walk in that tunnel and you're thinking, how did they do this? They were geniuses, engineering geniuses to be able to figure this out. So anyway, when you come emerge out of Hezekiah's tunnel, that's go water system goes into the pool of Salome. That's where it's, it's get it, it gets its water from the pool of Salome, uh, the Gihon Spring. Anywho, back to tabernacles. So this is what the tabernacles would look like during the day. And you can see the night with the torches. Obviously there's a huge celebration. You can see them bringing the water <clears throat> and from the, from the, from sorry, the Salome and all the way to the, the, the altar there on the southwestern side of the altar. And of course, like what I said, Jesus said he was the light of the world. If anyone thirsts, come to him for eternal life, right? He used this whole thing there. And you can see the long trek. Okay, so this is how long of a trip the blind man had to walk down, totally blind, to the pool of Siloam. Now, here's the question. Why did Jesus make him walk so far? What was the deal? What's the purpose behind that? Because he could have just healed him right there, and it's like, all right, you're done. Well, he was trying to illustrate something with him. That if you truly believe that I healed you, the only way you're gonna see is if you take a walk of faith and you walk by faith blindly all the way down to the pool of Siloam and when you wash your eyes, then you will see. He's requiring faith from the individual. That's why he's doing it. Now, why is he requiring faith? Because Israel has rejected him already. So what does that mean? Well, he changed his policy in miracles. And the policy before Israel rejected him was, I'll heal people without even faith. I'll heal them to prove that I'm the Messiah so I don't require their faith. But once Israel commits the impardonable sin and rejects the Messiah, year one and a half, he changes his policy. Now he will require faith from the individual if they want to be healed. And that's why he makes them walk down there because the policy has changed. And he makes this blind man walk down there as, an, as an, a, a, a demonstration of it. So like, uh, uh, let me give you another illustration. When he, uh, they go to Lazarus' grave, Lazarus has been dead for four days, remember that story? <clears throat> and he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. 
But he tells them, move the stone. Now, he's God. He's going to raise someone back from the dead. Why didn't he just say, move away and move the stone himself? Because he could. Mm -mm. You guys move it. Why does he make them do that? Because it's a faith act. Do you really believe I can raise someone from the dead? Yeah. Well, then prove it to me. Move the stone. That's how it is. It's a proving of faith. It's a test of faith, okay? So anyway, they would have a big, big celebration, and that's what the temple kind of looked like, and there's the water and everything. So back to the story. And he came back seeing. Yeah, because he believed. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen him are seeing that he was, uh, was blind said, is not this, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. They don't even believe it's him. I mean, poor guy. You guys don't remember me? I can see you, but now you can't see me? I don't get it. You've become blind and now I see. The whole, it's, it's a funny, funny story. It's, it's ironic what happens with this guy. This guy's great, man. I, 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 I gotta find this guy when we're in heaven because he is so funny and he's so on point, man. So anyway, therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Pretty simple. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. He can't even identify him. Remember, he didn't see him because he's blind. So I went and washed and I received sight. There you go, pretty simple. Then he said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. (laughs) Okay, so someone healed you. You don't even know where the guy went. What's wrong with you, dude? You, it's so funny. It's a funny story, but it's meant to antagonize the Pharisees, okay? Let's keep going. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Well, they'll, they'll figure it out. Sure they will. Now it came, now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now, it wasn't just simply a Sabbath. It's the Sabbath during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a higher Sabbath, high holy day. Ah, okay. There's always a Sabbath controversy, even though he's Lord of the Sabbath. So anyway, now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. There we go again, right? Man-made rules. And they say, because of the man-made rules, Jesus must not be from God. Jesus is from God. He keeps God's rules, but he doesn't keep theirs because theirs are, their, their rules are crazy. But what they had done is they had made the Sabbath into an idol. And basically today, I will say it for, for them as well. The Sabbath is an idol in Israel, okay? Now, what do you mean? I think about how ridiculous this is, Okay. When you're in a hotel in Israel on the Sabbath, that stupid elevator doesn't work. And that that elevator does, it goes from floor to floor to floor. So if you're on the 14th floor, you gotta stop at all floors to get to the 14th floor. And then you will stop on all floors to get down to the lobby. Because why? It's work to push a button. You gotta be kidding me. It's work to push a button? Yeah, it's work to push, that's Pharisee. 
That's Orthodox, that's Hasidic, that's, that's the modern day Pharisees. And you're thinking, that's ridiculous. Yeah, it is. Because the Sabbath is not made for man, but man for the Sabbath. So you're used to use the Sabbath to rest and recoup, not to get so fanatical about it that you turn the Sabbath into an idol. And that's what the Pharisees were fighting Jesus about. Anywho, um, another other said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? So there's a split happening and there was a division among them. But you will notice that some of the Pharisees will actually come to faith in Messiah, but will stay silent and not confess him. Um, the two big ones are Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They actually believe in him, but they're, they, they, they go public at his death. They won't go public before they go public. And, and, and going public was what? They took his body down. They asked for the body and they put it in Joseph's tomb. That's a public identification with the Messiah at that point. And so they were, they were totally cut off, by the way. Poor, poor Nicodemus. Nicodemus, we have um, the church fathers talking uh, about Nicodemus and how he ended up. Nicodemus was a very wealthy man. He, had a lot, he was a head of a synagogue and he was a ruler and he, he had a lot going for him. But the minute he identified with Jesus when, when he buried him, Nicodemus lost all his wealth. And the church fathers say that Nicodemus died as a pauper, had nothing, died in poverty. But boy, is he rich now, right? <laughs> they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said, he is a prophet. You gotta conclude something, right? And he does. He's at least a prophet. But the Jews did not believe him concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents of him who had received his sight. Are you kidding me, man? So yeah, we're gonna call his parents. Get in here. I don't know how fast this transpired, but this is a circus, a complete circus that you're watching, okay? But why? He was provoked by Jesus. He's, he wants this to turn into this, how ridiculous they are. And they asked him, he brought in the parents, there's mom and dad. Is your son who say it was born blind, who you say was born blind, how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or he opened his eyes, we do, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. Did you see what they did? <laughs> they totally shoved it off. I'm not answering you. Ask him, he's of age. You know why they did this? They don't want to get in trouble. What kind of trouble? What do you mean? He will speak for himself. And look, at John explains to you what happened. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Now, not all the Jews we're talking about in context, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, okay? For the Jews or the religious leaders and the Pharisees had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Messiah, Jesus was the Messiah, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Ah, now we know why the parents dished it off. They don't want to be put out of the synagogue. What does that mean? Well, let me explain being put out of the synagogue. This is according to Jewish law, okay? It's actually carried into the New Testament where, where we get the term excommunication from, okay? Three levels of excommunication. So let me ask you this. As you read this, it says they put him, they threaten anyone to be put out of the synagogue, okay? 
The first level of excommunication is nezifa, okay, or nezifut. So what is that? It means, it's simply a, dis, a disciplinary rebuke pronounced by three rabbis and lasts anywhere from seven to 30 days. An example of nezifa is found in 1 Timothy 5.1. So we, we incorporated this into the New Testament, by the way. That's the first level. Second level, the nidu, or nudai, which means to cast out. Lasting a minimum of 30 days, it also was also disciplinary. It had to be pronounced by 10 rabbis. Examples of the second type are found in 2 Thessalonians 3 and Titus 3.10. So again, we incorporated the second level into the New Testament. Third level, harem, which originally meant to be devoted for destruction. But in the New Testament times, it meant to be unsynagogued, to be, to be unsynagogued or to be put out. Wait a second. What did it say in the text? John is telling you it's at the third level, isn't he? He's saying they'd be, to be put out of the synagogue. So it, haram means devoted to destruction, but it changed its language by the time of the New Testament, and it meant to be put out of the synagogue. Oh, so now I understand. Well, what does that mean? It's basically to be separated from the Jewish community. The rest of the Jews consider someone under the harem cursed to be dead, no communication of any kind, no kind of relationship can be carried on with that person. This curse lasted indefinitely. This is also found in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter five. Whoa. You see why the parents won't answer? Because the, the thing is, if you say it's Jesus of Nazareth, that's Messiah, Harem is pronounced on you, and we won't talk to you. We won't do business with you. You're completely cut off from the Jewish community, and the parents don't want to do that. They will die and starve to death if that happens. So they don't want to do it. They're afraid. And so they put it back on their own son. But that's what John is relating to us. It was a big deal, right? <clears throat> so they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give, glory, give God gl the glory. We know that this man is a sinner, he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that I was blind and now I see. So go explain that one, right? I mean, you see, he's bold. I like this guy. He's very bold with the religious leaders. He's not afraid, by the way. The miracle that happened to him is making him bold. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? <laughs> Classic. That's awesome, man. I love this guy. He's not afraid. Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he, is, where he is from. Now watch what he says. This is great. Then he said, the man answered and said to them, why? This is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet he opened my eyes. Do you know what he is saying? Since I was a little boy, in the, the synagogues and in the Hebrew schools, you guys have been saying that when Messiah shows up, he will heal congenital blindness. And when we see this man and he heals congenital blindness, then we're to say that's the Messiah. Now this is marvelous thing. Here's a man healing a congenital blindness and you guys won't pronounce him the Messiah. That's what he's saying. He's putting it right back in their dish, right back in their grill. I love it, it's awesome. 
Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears them, he's right. He has better theology than the, 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 than the Pharisees. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was, bit, was born blind. And he's right, that's the proper theology. No one has been healed of congenital blindness until Jesus does it. The dude's theology is perfect, perfect. Isn't that funny? It's not the most educated that have the right theology. It's just the blue collar right in the middle, right there. Because I think this, every time people get educated, they get stupider. We have a bunch of high IQ fools running around our society that think they know it all, and they don't. God uses farmers, he uses people uh, fishing, he used, the, he used the commoner, didn't he? If this man were not from God, he could not do nothing. He, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and you are teaching us. And they cast him out. Oh my land. Yeah, he is teaching you. He's taking you to school. He's just schooled you. He just took you to the net, to the hoop. He already, he already dunked on you. Do you not see what he did on you? He, he slam dunked it, broke the, broke the thing and shattered it like Shaquille O'Neal. And you don't see it. You're not gonna teach us. We have our PhDs. We know this, we know that. You don't know anything. So anyway, they cast him out. Now watch, Jesus' response to this. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the son of God? Now that's a big term. He didn't say son of man, he says son of God, which means equivalent to God the Father, okay? Now here's the thing in the background of the Jewish, Jewish uh, understanding. Did the Old Testament say that Messiah is the son of God? All over the place, okay? Look at this, I'll come back. <clears throat> Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. You should call his name Emmanuel. The son that the virgin will have, his name means God with us. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Thank you very much, Isaiah. Yes, there is the Son of God. I declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you, Psalm 2, 7. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him, the son, the son of God. Continue on, look at this. <clears throat> When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, talking to David, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne for, of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. How do you establish a throne in the kingdom forever unless the person that's a king from David's throne that can sit on David's throne is God? because a human can't last forever. So he's the God-man. Look at this last one. Here was the, the, the trivial pursuit question of the Old Testament. This is it, Proverbs 34. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in its fit, his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What would your, be your answer? What would be your answer? Who's gathered the waters in his garment? Who's gathered the wind in his fist? Who, who does that? Who goes to heaven and descends in essence? Who does that? 
God. So my answer would be God. But look at the last thing. What is his name? And what is his son's name? If you know. Oh, wait a second. You know what was happening? The big trivial pursuit question for the Old Testament saints was the name of God's son. They couldn't figure it out. What is the name of God's son? And then we find out when he's born, the angel Gabriel says, Mary, you shall call his name Yeshua, for he has saved his people. Oh, okay. The question is answered by the angel Gabriel to Mary. So he knew this. Okay, watch, let's go back. <clears throat> Real quick. There we go. Do you believe in the son of God? His Jewish background would say, yes, I do. He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? So he doesn't know that the son of God is standing in front of him. He doesn't even know this because he couldn't see him, right? <clears throat> Look at his faith. And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And what did he do? And he worshiped him because Jesus is God. Oh, thank you very much. Perfectly. Here's a blind man that actually can see spiritually. Is that ironic? The story's ironic. Here's a blind man that can see spiritually and the people who can see can't see spiritually. So what happens? <clears throat> and Jesus said, now he's speaking to the Pharisees, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see, in essence, the unsaved, believe that, the unsaved believe that works salvation, which causes spiritual blindness. So if an unbeliever believes they're gonna work their way to heaven, it causes a spiritual blindness towards seeing that salvation's by faith. That's what causes the blindness. May see, the idea of seeing is a metaphor for believing in the Messiah in order to be saved apart from works, by faith alone, right? And that those who see or think they're saved due to their works and heredity, like the Jews or anyone else, pagans, may be blind. So the spiritual blindness is a punishment for rejecting the truth, refusing to see the truth because you want to work your way to heaven. So anyone that's out there that wants to work their way to heaven is spiritually blinding themselves. It's you blind, God doesn't blind you, you blind yourself. This is why in Romans, it'll say uh, Israel has suffered partial blindness. God didn't put the blindness on them. The reason Paul says they're blind is for the same reason Jesus said it here. The Jews want to work their way to heaven. So they've been partially blinded. What do you mean partial? Well, there's a messianic remnant that does believe by faith. That's why. Now, let's bring it to your corner. If you're a believer, can you go spiritually blind? Yes, you can. You can. And how so? Look what Peter says. <clears throat> well, where am I at? There we go. But also for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. Now what is that all saying? It's saying your discipleship, 
your walk with the Lord, your spiritual maturity. You should be growing in your spiritual maturity. But watch what he says. For if, conditional, if these things are yours and abound, that you're doing great, you're exceeding, you're going beyond, you're adding to your, your, thing, uh, your walk, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted. They lose sight of the coming of the Lord and even to blindness and has forgotten he was cleansed from his old sins. So what is Peter saying? A believer can go into spiritual blindness if they fail to progress in their maturity if they fail to go on and become more like Christ. The more you become like Christ, the more you see spiritually, by the way. Hopefully in five years, you'll see more spiritually. But if you decide, no, nah, I'm good right here, Brandon. I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna kick back right here. I, I, I'm kind of okay with myself at this point. You're gonna go blind. You will go spiritually blind. That's what's happening to Laodicea. He tells Laodicea, you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So he references the blind. The Laodicean church is blind. That's why they can't see what's going on. They're spiritually dull. Ah. So the warning for all of us is this. For unbelievers, spiritual blindness comes from believing in works to save you. For believers, it's not progressing in your walk with the Lord. So the good news is, if you're walking with him and you're close in fellowship, you will see spiritually. And that's how we have to be. Because the way this world is, you better have your spiritual sight on all the time. If not, you're gonna be deceived. And that's what's happening. If you go blind, what happens? The God of this world will blind you. And he will make sure he deceives you. Amen? All right, let's stop right there. Let's enter in a word of prayer. And then we'll go and participate in the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you, Lord, for uh, what you taught us in this story about the blind man. It was so funny. But we saw what you were doing to the Pharisees, putting it back on them and having this blind man rebuke them. It's awesome, awesome. You, the only way that that could happen is through you. Really, really encouraging to see that, Father. Thank you so much. And Father, help us to continue our walk so we stay spiritually alert and we don't go blind. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.